This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Richard Brilly. Dr. Brilly is the Chief Medical Officer at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, where he is also Professor of Pediatrics at The Ohio State University. Rich, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Really glad to be here. Rich, um, you and I have known each other for several decades, and uh, most memorably, I, I recall about 10 years ago when we were at the um, Chicago O'Hare Airport where you were leading an initiative, one of the first initiatives in our field to prevent harm in the pediatric ICU environment. Um, I'm, of course, talking about the um, what was then the National Children's Association and now Children's Hospital Association initiative about catheter-associated bloodstream infection. And you led that initiative uh, across the United States by developing uh, insertion prevention bundles and then uh, maintenance prevention bundles in the care of uh, children who had a central line. And that effort led to decreased infections and, and, and improved mortality. And your colleagues around the world uh, recognize you for that work. And I wonder if we could discuss a little bit um, what were the lessons learned um, from that experience and um, also where, are, where have you taken it now? But before we begin the conversation, I wonder if we could ask our colleagues around the world, could you first tell us your city and country location? And the questions we have for you is this, in your PICU, do you routinely use uh, an insertion prevention bundle uh, when placing a central line in a critically ill child? And the second question is, uh, do you have and do you routinely use uh, a maintenance prevention bundle in the uh, management and care of children with uh, indwelling central lines? We're back now with Dr. Brilly. So Rich, um, I wonder if we could pick it up from there. Could you tell us what, what were the motivations? Uh, you were one of the leaders of this initiative with several others. Uh, to develop that catheter-associated bloodstream infection initiative, and what were the lessons learned? Yeah, I, I think, Jeff, if we think back to 2005, 2006, um, the concept around prevention bundles was, was pretty new, and really there weren't any in pediatrics at the time. And I want to give uh, credit to Marlene Miller, who worked with me in, in helping us develop these, uh, these prevention practices around central line-associated bloodstream infections. Um, there was some work that had been done in the adult world, and there was uh, actually some Centers for Disease, Disease Control um, recommendations for how to prevent these, these infections, but they really were not uh, useful for children, and some aspects really weren't being used well in children. So if you'll remember, we, we got together and put together a, uh, a set of practices around what should be the, the best practices for insertion of catheters sterile technique and, and other things, and what should be practices around how we maintain catheters. And um, that work was sort of the beginning of thinking about, can we prevent hospital-acquired conditions? Can we prevent hospital-acquired infections through developing evidence-based practices and not waiting for the randomized placebo-controlled trial to tell us the right answer, but actually by bringing lots of hospitals into the fold and thinking about what are the right prevention practices, and then looking at 
outcomes over time using statistical process control uh, tracking and, and quality improvement science to demonstrate effect. And what happened was our plan was to roll this out, which we did initially to 29 children's hospitals. And we looked at baseline infection rates, which back in 2006 were almost seven infections per thousand line days. And we implemented this bundle in 29 children's hospitals. And over the course of a couple of years, that rate was cut in half. And um, last year, when we sort of moved on to other practices, it was down less than one infection per thousand line days. And that improvement over time, what it told us is that we can work together um, across children's hospitals, develop best practices, and implement them with re um, high reliability science and improvement science uh, using, you know, relatively speaking, standardized methodologies, and then we could actually drive transformative change. And if you remember when you and I were younger docs in the ICU, uh, a central line associated bloodstream infection was two a week, three a week, sometimes you know five or six a month, ten a month, and now in many children's hospitals, a decade later, you know, one in a month is problematic, and people go a year without central line bloodstream infections. Um, and so I, I think that what that project demonstrated was the ability for us to work together transparently, learning from each other about how we can uh, drive change and reduce infections in the PICU. And as we'll talk later, you know, that work is now going beyond the PICU to lots of other hospitals and lots of other areas within hospitals. Well, Rich, I wonder if we could now show our audience, um, this is the Boston Children's Hospital Insertion Bundle, and similarly the uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital Insertion and Maintenance Prevention Bundle are available upon request. But Rich, as we look at the, um, the insertion bundle uh, protocol here, what, what are the general concepts or the the most salient features of this bundle that our colleagues around the world should be aware of? Well, I think key elements are, of course, placing a line with sterile technique. And I think that one of the things that was novel then, isn't novel anymore, was the fact that you needed to have full sterile barrier protection. So full garb like you're in the operating room and full sterile barriers of the entire bed so that you don't contaminate your materials when you put the line in. So that's the first piece. Another important piece is the, the skin cleaning uh, preparation. Betadine was used regularly and, and as part of this bundle we suggested chlorhexidine as a better skin prep and making sure that that's done consistently. And another very important piece is having a team member there who can speak up if sterile technique is breached. And that's actually quite new because a lot of times, you know, the, the tip of the wire touches something that's unsterile. You may not notice it as the person putting in the catheter, but the nurse who's checking off that all of the, all of the insertion practices are being done in proper order and with proper technique may notice that. And a, an important step of this is having a culture wherein the, the physician or nurse practitioner operator putting the line in hears, you know, doctor or nurse, you um, breach sterile technique. And the response to that is, thank you, we need to start over again or figure out how to mitigate that and not uh, having a, a response that is uh, dismissive or not, not, not willing to hear that sterile technique was, was breached. And 10 years ago, that was novel, and people being uh, willing to be members of a team and not hierarchical has allowed us to really have 
pretty much 100% compliance with the insertion techniques associated with catheter insertion. Um, now the maintenance care is um, more of a nursing function than a, than a physician function, and it has a lot of components which you, which you can see on the screen. But again, probably the main tech issues are making sure that we sterilely change uh, dressings uh, around the catheter insertion site, that we properly clean the site before we put the dressings back on, that we have um, techniques around tubing changes that are sterilely done, that we change the caps on the tips of the lines uh, sterilely, and that, that that's done consistently, and that we measure compliance with those, with those practices. Again, uh, things that were not being done regularly a decade ago, and now I think are pretty consistently done across many children's hospitals in this country, if not nearly all. Well, Rich, um, that marked the first initiative in our field to, to actively prevent patient harm. And it was extraordinarily successful. But you've moved on to something else, the solution for patient safety. Could you tell our colleagues around the world, what is this and what was the, what was the motivation for this? Well, I think in, um, in the state of Ohio, we began to look at not only bloodstream infections, uh, but also other hospital-acquired conditions. And um, we had a very strong Children's Hospital Association in the state of Ohio, and we decided that it was important, we meaning the organizations and our CEOs, chief executive officers, that we should look at other conditions that maybe we could work together transparently and learn from each other to try to reduce harm in our children's hospitals. We even aspired to have Ohio be the safest, children, safest state in the, in the country for children to receive health care. So we started um, working together around uh, surgical site infection prevention and adverse drug event prevention. And uh, the implementation of medical response teams, which are now, again, very common around the, around the world, um, as demonstration projects for how can we work together to implement best practice and reduce harm. The reason why this is so important is that the state of Ohio is a relatively small state from the standpoint of that there's eight children's hospitals there. And we, um, we compete for patients. We compete to, to um, bring patients to our institutions because we think we have great systems and great care practices and we want children to come there. But for safety, we decided with the support of our CEOs and our boards of directors that we would not compete for patients on safety. And in fact, we would uh, work together and learn from each other about how can we prevent these um, hospital-acquired conditions. And so through that work, beginning in 2010, 2011, um, we had a state collaborative focused on those, those three hospital-acquired conditions. And um, we got remarkable results there as well in terms of reducing uh, through the use of the medical response team codes outside the intensive care unit, uh, through implementing a, a surgical site infection prevention bundle, uh, reduction in surgical site infections in pediatric hospitals. That's been published now in, in the medical literature. And um, beganing wor began work on trying to figure out how do we reduce medication errors and, and adverse drug events. And that work in our state said we can take it beyond the state. And so through uh, leadership with my colleagues in Cincinnati and at Nationwide Children's Hospital and other leaders in this, the state of Ohio, um, we began to work on thinking, how can we take this national? Um, Cincinnati Children's Hospital put in for a, a CMS, Grant Center for Medicaid uh, 
a Medicare Services grant, which uh, uh, we won nationally. And so there was a large request for hospital education networks. There were 26 of them that CMS was going to fund. And uh, this Solutions for Patient Safety was the only pediatric one. And it started with um, the state of Ohio Children's Hospitals, and then we recruited another um, 20 or so hospitals to have a total of about 30 or 35. And we began focusing on um, a number of other hospital-acquired conditions, um, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, ventilator-associated pneumonia prevention, medication error prevention, surgical site infection prevention, and um, a number of others which you can see here on screen. And that work in conjunction with thinking about how do we transform our cultures and, and into becoming high reliability organizations started in 30 or 35 hospitals and now has now spread to almost 90 hospitals. So when I think about that, what gets me excited, gives me goosebumps right now talking with you, Jeff, is that the usual way we attack these sorts of things is Austin Children's would do something, you'd publish it, Two years after you did it, it would get in the medical literature. We would all read about it, and then we would learn from it. Or the same thing might happen at, at Nationwide Children's. And so we were always several years behind. This concept of working together transparently, not competing on safety, allowed us to learn in real time what best practices might be, test them across lots of children's hospitals and in the pediatric environment, and then learn this works. And then we roll it out and spread it and measure not only outcomes, but compliance with the various process measures that we've identified, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. So Jeff, you know, an important concept as this Solutions for Patient Safety Network has grown is that um, the 89 children's hospitals, and some of the logos of those children's hospitals are on your screen now for those to see, represent more than 50% of the pediatric admissions in the United States. So it's a very robust network that has so much data in it and so much information in it that it really allows us to develop evidence-based practices um, without doing a randomized placebo-controlled child and using the science of improvement uh, with that much robust data to understand what best practices work and which ones don't and to link those to outcomes, specific outcomes. I'm sure I speak for our colleagues around the world in the next question. So what framework are you using in this new initiative, the solution for patient safety? And what should we know about the methodology? I think there are two components to driving change in any organization. This really isn't <clears throat> specific to pediatrics. I think it's specific to driving change in organizations. And what you can see here is that there needs to be activity around specific hospital-acquired harm events you know, teams and the use of bundles, the use of measurement of compliance around the use of those bundles. And so you need to have a team focused on bloodstream infection prevention, a team focused on ventilator-associated pneumonia prevention, a team focused on surgical site infection prevention. And <clears throat> there is a method that I think can work, and, I, and I, there, there are several, and I can maybe talk a little bit about uh, um, what might be the best approaches, but there are three that are commonly used, uh, at least in, in uh, the quality improvement uh, world. The IHI model for improvement, um, Lean, and, and Six Sigma are three methods that 
are often used in, in organizations to drive change and in, uh, drive improvement. I wonder if I could turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. Uh, could you first please state your city and country location? And the question is this. Um, in your pediatric intensive care unit, do you use a standard or standardized quality improvement framework to analyze adverse events? And if so, uh, which framework do you use? Uh, do you use one of the three that Dr. Brilly mentioned, uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, or the lean, or the so-called Six Sigma? So, you know, I think that the platform may not be um, one better than the other. Um, Seattle Children's has um, had remarkable improvement work using the lean methodology, which focuses on eliminating waste from systems and creating better efficiencies. The IHI model for improvement has been promulgated by the Institute for Healthcare Improvement now for a number of years and has been tested and validated in a lot of institutions and also is a proven roadmap to driving change in organizations. And a Six Sigma or the DMAIC, D-M-A-I-C methodology also can focus on driving improvement. But I think they use different words, different terms, and those are often confusing for uh, folks who are learning about this. And so I, I do think, and we talk about this in our Solutions for Patient Safety, that I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but probably using one platform, any of those three, uh, within your institution is a good thing uh, for people understanding the common language, people approaching it the same way, um, people understanding uh, what the next steps are in, in terms of driving change. And I think when you use different platforms, while that can work, I think it can be confusing for people, and I think just a little less efficient in terms of getting the results of uh, driving towards best outcomes. So this next slide uh, shows the, the hospital-acquired conditions that we are working on across the 89 children's hospitals that we've talked about before. And I won't read all of them to you, but they are hospital-acquired infections. They are complications associated peripheral, with peripheral IVs, uh, venous thromboembolism, which... Uh, is a common problem in, in adults, but much less common problem in children, and we are, we are tackling that as well. And of course, medication errors and adverse drug events, uh, along with uh, preventing hospital readmissions and the morbidity associated with coming back into the hospital when maybe we could have done a better job of preparing you for discharge and preventing that readmission. But I think um, one of the important concepts around the approach to driving change is to have um, teams focused on these various um, hospital-acquired conditions, which I alluded to before. And, you know, a little bit about teams. I think that you don't achieve success in driving change unless you have effective teams. You know, and so effective teams, um, in my view and, and in our work around the country, is really having uh, multidisciplinary leadership, uh, having folks who can um, gather data and who have understanding of improvement science, um, both methodology and and can put together statistical process control charts and other uh, run charts that allow us to see improvement over time. Uh, and so the team is a very important piece of this, not only the multidisciplinary leadership, which I mentioned, but also the right team composition. You need to have people on your team who not only bring uh, content knowledge, but people on your team who might actually be not early adopters, people who are a bit of naysayers, people who say, I'm not sure I really think this is a good idea, so that you have a, a multidisciplinary 
a robust conversation around what is uh, the best way to implement this in our organization. So Rich, um, as I sit here, what strikes me is the, uh, the catheter-associated bloodstream infection targeted really clinicians in the ICU at the bed space, doctors and nurses. But this initiative truly seems uh, hospital-wide. Uh, does it require leadership from, from the, the executives as well uh, as others throughout the institution? Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's a, a great question, Jeff, and, and it's, it's essential. We've been talking about um, focused work on specific hospital-acquired conditions, infections, medication errors, those sorts of things. But what we've also seen is that without uh, a culture or an environment of focused on safety and high reliability, I think you can get results, but you can get results more quickly if you have that culture in your organization. And on the slides, you can see uh, culture work and the implementation of high reliability principles. And this, uh, this next slide is a, is a cartoon that depicts the horizontal blue arrows that you see here, which represent the various things that happen across units, across the organization, that help um, facilitate driving change within units and within the organization. So what do I mean by that? So to be honest with you, it starts with the board and the, the executive leadership. Um, if they are not supportive of this work, um, they can put up barriers, but even more importantly, the, there's just not the resources allocated that sometimes uh, need to happen. Um, and so you need, as a leader in an organization, to create the burning platform and the, the um, message that this is important. One of the things that we have done is we have begun to focus not on rates of harm, you know, central line associated bloodstream infections per uh, thousand line days or medication errors, per thousand medication doses administered, but rather how many children are harmed. And so in creating that culture of safety and of high reliability, um, you can talk about how many children are harmed in your institution across all of these various hospital-acquired uh, conditions from medication errors to hospital-acquired infections and other things we've been talking about. So getting buy-in from your hospital leadership and board of directors to support uh, changing the culture is an essential piece of how we, you know, how we can drive change. You see other other methodologies here on the on the slides here. Leadership methods. That's a a concept around getting senior leaders out in the workspace, supporting uh, the culture of safety, talking about frontline staff. What are your safety concerns today? Tell me about your um, last event that you thought you know could have been harmed or could have, patient could have been harmed and, and was prevented. Getting an engagement so that frontline staff see senior leaders out there um, placing great importance on the fact that, that this work is, is essential to our um, accomplishing best outcomes. Having um, a set of tools which are, are being rolled out as part of this that have been shown um, as if you follow these error prevention tools, uh, the frequency with which humans make simple errors um, is, goes down. And, and uh, understanding that those kinds of practices can actually reduce human error, which also contributes to, to harm events. Um, including families in this work is an essential piece of this. You know, we as clinicians think we know what's best for our, our children and what's best for our patients, but um, families, often know far better than we do. So 
you know, a, a new concept for many of us is to include families on our rounds, to have a family member contributing to rounds, asking questions on rounds, sometimes challenging what we say about their child on rounds, alerting us that their child is sick when we don't recognize it. So family engagement in this work is essential. And having, um, changing topics but moving on, having other uh, analysis of the harm events that do happen, um, having a robust root cause analysis process. When we started our work at Nationwide Children's Hospital, we thought we got to the root cause of various uh, serious harm events. And when we really put in place a very robust root cause analysis, uh, we found that there was many, many more layers of analysis that needed to happen to really get down to why did this event uh, happen? You know, asking why five times. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Until you really get to the bottom of, of the true root cause. Breaking it up into individual and system failures. Um, but along with that, a fair and just accountability practice. So, you know, there, there are sort of two opposite extremes. There is a punitive culture where if you make a mistake, you get fired or you get some kind of significant uh, letter put in your, in your personnel file. And at the other end, sort of a laissez-faire culture where, you know, I, I don't have to follow the policy. I don't really like the policy. I'll just do my own thing. And so just culture is the concept around having um, identifying the root cause, identifying you know, what happened, and sometimes if it's an individual who didn't follow policy, making sure that they get feedback, constructive feedback, and, and have additional education and learning so that they can uh, better understand how they might uh, follow the expected practices uh, with an intention of trying to drive um, harm reduction and improve outcomes. So there is this sweet spot, which was called the just culture, which is not too much punitive, but also some accountability, and, and that's what this just culture concept is, is talking about as well. And all of this adds up to a, an organization that's focused on safety and is beginning to use the high reliability principles that Wyke and Sutcliffe have talked about and, and are part and parcel, I think, of taking us from where we are now to, to the next level of harm reduction. So Rich, could you talk to us some more about this concept of a high reliability organization? Uh, what is it and um, what are the characteristics that define it? So high reliability organizations have been around for a long time. Um, the nuclear power industry, um, the airline industry, even uh, militaries around the world have really learned how to be mindful of uh, risk and have a preoccupation with failure. Um, and some of the things that you can see here that are on, on this slide uh, are talking about always being aware of um, harm risks, being continuously ready to um, mitigate those risks, um, having harm reduction owned by leaders at the frontline staff, um, and learning in real time from errors that didn't happen but almost happened, or learning in real time uh, from errors that, that do happen. And those organizations have developed a, a reliability around um, errors that is remarkable. Uh, for example, how often does a check go to the wrong checking account in, in the U.S. banking system? How often do we have um, injuries associated with uh, crashes in the airline industry? It's very uncommon. Of course, when it happens, it's, it's uh, terrible, but very uncommon. 
So if you imagine uh, uh, the slide that's up here for you, on the horizontal is um, the number of encounters that might occur, and on the y-axis or the vertical is the number of deaths associated with those encounters. So you see to the right that uh, the nuclear power industry, the airline industry, the railroad industry have uh, a few deaths per 10 million encounters, highly reliable. They, they have their systems working so well that, that there's very little injury when you talk about mortality uh, in, those in those industries. If you look to the left, uh, you can see that um, high-risk things like mountain climbing, bungee jumping, uh, have you know, 10 to 20 deaths per 100 encounters. Very, very unreliable systems, and those make sense, of course. And the thing that may be remarkable for, for people listening here is that the healthcare industry is closer to bungee jumping and mountain climbing than it is to the airline industry in terms of our safety record. And what you can see here is that we have um, about one in 700 preventable deaths in hospitals around the United States um, per uh, 700 encounters. That's a, that's a number that we need to improve on. It's not a very reliable system. And these data come from the Institute of Medicine, um, data from the late 90s, and there's be in, been even some new papers that are talking about um, the number of deaths, uh, in, preventable deaths that happen in our hospitals. So what do we take away from that? Um, hospitals do great work. We, we save lives. We transform outcomes. We <clears throat> bring children um, success and outcomes that we never imagined 10, 20, 30 years ago. But as part of coming to work every day and as part of coming into the hospital, um, there is harm that happens, unintentional harm. And this work on the solutions of patient safety and what we're talking about here, Jeff, is all about making our hospital safer so that a child can come in, get the cure that they're looking for, but not be unintentionally harmed as part of uh, coming to our hospitals. So, uh, Rich, uh, your initiatives, uh, the first one, the, the Central Line Initiative, really got us to think differently. I know I, that was the impact on me and at our institution, and that is we thought that uh, a certain infection rate was just business uh, as, as usual, that it was something that accompanied uh, the, the placement of a central line in a critically ill child. And you got us to think about that differently, that we, we must and that we could lower the infection rate. And I see where you're going with this now, um, that we have been accepting this kind of background rate of adverse event. And now what you're saying is it's an equal challenge for us to say, no, we must actively search and prevent these unintended risks to the patient. And it's a, it is a completely different way of thinking about it. So I'm sure now our colleagues are wondering, do you have data from the Solution for Patient Safety, any outcome data that you can share with us now? So, you know, Jeff, this high reliability concept is, is uh, new, still new to healthcare, as we've been talking about. But I, I want to give a shout out to really the international experts on this, this concept, uh, Carl Weick and Kathleen Sutcliffe, and you can see the, uh, the book uh, that's on the slide here. And, and they've described five key principles, and I won't go through all of them, but I highly recommend this as reading uh, to get a better sense of the details associated with high reliability organizations are all about. 
But I, I want to just mention that the concept one there, preoccupation with failure, is that we're all really good at looking at when something goes wrong and a, a big problem happens. We really are good at, at examining that and looking for the root cause. But actually, there's far more near-miss events that um, we can learn a lot from. And in fact, preventing near-miss events or events that almost reach the patient um, are the same principles that prevent that terrible event that actually does reach the patient. So this preoccupation with failure is a really important uh, concept. And the other one I want to emphasize here is the commitment to resilience. Um, no matter how um, reliable we become and no matter how uh, perfect our care becomes over time, we will still have of errors. And we have to have a commitment to resilience to look at what happened, figure out why it happened, put in place systems to, to prevent that, and to not be demoralized uh, when that happens, but actually to be energized around, okay, this has happened. How do we learn from it? How do we prevent the next one so that doesn't happen again? So, Jeff, we've been talking a lot about theory, a lot, of, a lot about what we ought to do and, and uh, how we can change our organization's culture and, and focus on harm events. But the proof's in the pudding. Are, are we actually getting results here? And so I, I want to just show a few slides that I think uh, uh, the Solutions for Patient Safety Network should be really proud of. And I, I want to mention that I'm not the only person leading this work. There's, there are a number of other folks from Cincinnati Children's, Children's Hospital in Colorado, uh, Akron Children's, who are really leaders in this, in this area. And, and this is a, a team effort in terms of getting these results. But the slide that you can see here is from Ohio, and it, it depicts a serious a safety event rate. Uh, serious safety events are significant harm, uh, that re results from a variation from best or expected practice or even um, guideline expected practice. And um, these are the kind of harm events where children die under our care, on, on preventable deaths, or have permanent organ injury. So these are not just medication errors, but really harm events that really cause significant morbidity and even mortality in children. And what you can see from this slide in the state of Ohio is that there's been a 70% reduction associated with the implementation of these uh, teams focused on individual conditions and implementation of safety and high reliability principles. Um, and that's pretty remarkable results. Um, at our hospital uh, nationwide, uh, we used to have one serious safety event uh, every two weeks when we started our work uh, six or seven years ago. And now we have a couple of year. Uh, we just went um, almost three quarters of a year without a serious safety event. So the goal is still zero for all of us across the country, but this methodology works. And I think as a healthcare industry, a pediatric healthcare industry, we should be really proud of, of some of the results that we've gotten. Uh, as you can see from the next slide, um, there is a focus on how many harm events we happen. So I just showed you a serious safety event rate. But, um, People get inspired by how many children are injured. Um, and as you can uh, see from this slide, on the horizontal is time and on the vertical is the number of children that are harmed across the various hospitals in, in the network. And you know, on the left, back in 2011, uh, there were 33 hospitals in the network. And on average, there were uh, almost 300 children significantly harmed across those 33 hospitals. Um, Several children per day across those hospitals were harmed. And as we've added additional um, hospitals to the network, you can see that the 43 hospitals were added in, in uh, 2000, late 2012 and 2013. The numbers went up. 
And the reason that they went up, the number of harm events, is that this is not a rate. This is how many children are harmed across now a network of almost uh, 80 hospitals. And so you would expect the numbers to go up. Um, and so when you first look at this, you say, well, things are getting worse, not getting better. But as you look to the right of this in 2014 and 2015, we've started to see a decrease in the harm events. There's actually been a nearly 10% decrease in harm events across the, the 80 plus hospitals in our, in our network. And that pace is, is slow, but as you've seen from prior slides, there are varying hospitals, numbers of hospitals coming in. We've had the four waves of hospitals come in, and it takes time. You don't transform outcomes, you don't change culture uh, overnight. It takes, data says, two to three years to really change culture. So as new hospitals come on, their data is diluting out some of the data that of hospitals that have been in this for three, four, five, six years. And so it's harder to see improvement, but I think despite all of those caveats that I just mentioned there, you can see to the right here that harm events have started to go down um, across these 80 children's hospitals. Fewer kids are being harmed, and it's a big deal. And I think as more and more hospitals have been in this for longer and longer, this number is going to begin to drive towards zero. So I've shown you some run charts, uh, harm events over time decreasing. And this is where we are today. You can see these are the various hospital-acquired conditions on the slide. And there's been varying degrees of, of reduction, but every single harm event has now had a significant reduction uh, and falls there to the right, an 81% reduction in, in falls in the children's hospitals participating in this work. Hospital-acquired infections, and, and you can see the other uh, hospital-acquired conditions. So I get inspired thinking about this because we're not waiting for the paper to come out. We're learning from each other, and we're, we're driving improvement by working together uh, in an all-teach, all-learn uh, network. Um, so you know the way we've gotten these results is really not competing on safety. We talked about that at the very beginning. Um, having uh, twice-a-year learning sessions where we get together several hundred uh, people from around the country, I think our last learning session we had over 500 uh, participants where we both uh, present our results, present what um, best practices are, uh, hospitals that have really gotten dramatic results, teaching others about how to, how to do that in real time so that I can take what I learned at that meeting right back to my organization and implement it in real time and uh, not waiting for the randomized trial to be done or not waiting for the, the paper to come out. And you might say, well, is that real science? And, and an underlying principle of all this is, is the work of Deming. I uh, haven't mentioned him, but he has shown that uh, the statistical process control methodology, which is embraced by the IHI model for improvement and, and Lean and Six Sigma, uh, allows you to look at variation in, in rates of or harm events and identifying special and common cause events that allow us to understand that there has been a real change in the number of harm events um, using uh, this statistical process control methodology. And it also is somewhat new to the healthcare industry. We're used to seeing you know, the table where intervention is done in group one and then intervention is not done in group two and then comparing the results between those two groups. With quality improvement science, what we do is we throw the intervention into the whole cohort and watch what happens over time. And using the science of quality improvement and statistical process control, we can actually see change in harm events that's statistically valid, just like uh, the randomized placebo control uh, trial work can be as well. 
So, so Jeff, we've talked about clinical outcomes and the, the safer hospitals that we have around the country, and, and I'm incredibly proud of that. I think nationally in pediatric healthcare, we should be proud of that uh, and the, the work that Solutions for Patient Safety has done to get the results. Um, so this isn't about dollars, but to do this work, it does cost money. It does cost um, infrastructure. We, we have to hire people. We have to bring on um, additional data systems and other kinds of things. So it's, it's not free. And so is there a return on investment for some of this? So the slide that you can see here uh, has two key messages. It has uh, the published literature about how much a harm event costs. For example, a, a central line associated bloodstream infection published data suggests that costs about $55,000 to the organization. So preventing one event um, can reduce cost by $55,000. If you take all of the harm that's been prevented across these 89 children's hospitals, there are nearly 3,700 children who didn't get harm, who, who are, um, came into the hospitals and didn't get harmed. Inspiring. But when you add up the dollars per harm event prevented across the country, $79 million has been saved. And, and um, this isn't about dollars. This isn't about a return on investment. But, you know, in, in a world of, of um, where there isn't unlimited funding for this work, um, we do the work because it's the right thing. We do the work because children deserve the safest possible care in order to get the, the best possible outcomes. But I would be a Pollyanna to say that there isn't a, a dollar figure associated with trying to implement this work. And so when we can demonstrate not only fewer children harmed, but also dollars saved across you know, these uh, children's hospitals, it becomes a win-win. This, this isn't about um, cost. Uh, it's about doing the right thing for children. It's about doing the right thing for our families. It's about getting um, children to come into our organizations, get the cure that they're looking to, to receive, and have it happen in a way that they don't have uh, harm happen to them as part of being uh, admitted to one of our hospitals. And so, I, you know, I would tell you that as a personal journey and, and as a, being a participant in the work uh, around making our children's hospitals safer, I get, I get goosebumps talking about it because when you and I were young pups in, in, in the ICU, these kinds of events happened all the time. And we didn't know what we didn't know. And now um, the transparency and the focus on this um, for the sake of our children that we all love and, and work to provide great care for and their families, it's remarkable how, um, how we've come together as a, a collection of children's hospitals to make our, our care safer and get better outcomes. And um, we've come a long ways. We've got a long ways to go. The goal is eliminate uh, preventable harm in our children's hospitals, uh, and we will get there. Well, Dr. Rich Brilly, Chief Medical Officer at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, uh, I know I speak for uh, our colleagues around the world that we thank you for your leadership in uh, quality improvement. I thank you for inviting me, Jeff. It's been great. Thank you. Appreciate it. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.